Welcome to Defenders, the teaching class of Dr. William Lane Craig. Today, the creation of life and biological diversity, part 17. For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to reasonablefaith.org. Last time, we looked at the genealogies in Genesis 1 to 11 and saw the way in which they serve to provide a chronological framework for the primeval narratives that turn them into a primeval history. But, I argued, despite the interest in history that these genealogies evince, we shouldn't press them too hard for their literal uh, interpretation. We saw, for example, that um, in the genealogy in chapter 10, the so-called uh, Table of Nations, that despite words of begetting and son of and so forth, that these are not actually lines of blood descent, but group people on the basis of geography, ethnicity, uh, political uh, considerations, and so forth, so that this isn't a literal genealogical table. Moreover, we saw that the artificial symmetry between the antediluvian and the postdiluvian um, uh, ancestor suggests that this is an artificial construction arranged so as to have ten antediluvian ancestors from Adam to Noah and then ten postdiluvian ancestors from Shem to Abraham. And finally I argued that the abnormally long lifespans of the antediluvians suggests that these are not to be taken uh, literally, but on the pattern of the fantastic reigns of the ancient uh, Sumerian kings, I have some other purpose than to give a literal historical account. Now, just this past week, I was at a conference at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School on uh, the creation project and had a chance to talk with a few Old Testament scholars about some of these issues. I spoke uh, at some length with John Collins, who is a professor of Old Testament at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, and also with Richard Averbeck, who is a professor of Old Testament and ancient languages at Trinity. And I asked them what they thought of these uh, long lifespans of the antediluvians. And Collins said to me, Nobody knows what is going on here. Everybody is convinced there's something going on here, uh, but nobody can figure out exactly what it is. Averbeck suggested that perhaps the point of having these abnormally long lifespans was to show the tremendous antiquity of the figures involved, whether in the um, Genesis genealogies or in the Sumerian king lists, the abnormally long uh, reigns or lifespans was meant to indicate how deep in the prehistoric past they were. But again, this was just a suggestion. Nobody really knows for sure exactly the reason for these long um, antediluvian lifespans. So, uh, I argued that uh, while these genealogies do evince a historical interest on the part of the author of Genesis, we need to be careful not to press them too woodenly for literality. Uh, 
So I think Genesis 1 to 11 are plausibly to be understood as Hebrew myths with an interest in history. The uh, eminent Assyriologist Torkild Jakobsen proposed that we recognize a unique genre of literature which he called mytho-history. Mytho-history. On the basis of three fragments of different dates, uh, Torkild Jakobsen was able to assemble an ancient Sumerian story. Sumer was the uh, Mesopotamian civilization prior to uh, Babylon. He was able to assemble um, an ancient Sumerian story which he called the Eridu Genesis. Eridu is or was a Sumerian city. And the Eridu Genesis is a story which deals with the creation of man, the institution of kingship and the founding of the first cities, and then the great flood. And Jakobsen thinks that Genesis similarly describes the creation of man and animals. It lists the leading figures after creation and then narrates the flood. His reflections on this sort of literature are worth quoting at length. He says, and I quote, these three parts, that is to say the creation account, the account of the lists of uh, antediluvians, and then the flood itself, these three parts, moreover, are in both traditions, that is to say both in the Eridu Sumerian Genesis and in the Hebrew Genesis, are in both these traditions combined simply by arranging them along a line in time and not according to the most usual device for connecting separate tales or myths, namely grouping them around a single hero. In the Eridu Genesis, moreover, the progression is clearly a logical one of cause and effect. The wretched state of mankind touches the motherly heart of Nintur, she is the sort of mother goddess of Sumeria, touches her motherly heart who has man improve his lot by settling down in cities and building temples and she gives him a king to lead and organize. As this chain of cause and effect leads from nature to civilization, so a following such chain carries from the earliest cities and kings over into the story of the flood. The well-organized irrigation works carried out by the cities under the leadership of their kings lead to a greatly increased food supply and that in turn makes man multiply on the earth. The volume of noise these people make keeps Enlil, one of the Sumerian gods, from sleeping and makes him decide to get peace and quiet by sending the flood to exterminate mankind. Now, says Jakobsen, this arrangement along a line of time as cause and effect is striking 
for it is very much the way a historian arranges his data. And since the data here are mythological, we may assign to both traditions a new and separate genre as mytho-historical accounts. Now, it might be seriously questioned whether the conditions identified by Jakobsen for a narrative's qualifying as even quasi-historical in nature, namely, they arrange causally connected events in chronological order, is really sufficient to indicate a genuine historical interest. By this standard, the myth, the Enuma Elish, which we've discussed in this class, this is the myth of the uh, ascendancy of the god Marduk to a place of supremacy in the Babylonian pantheon, uh, pantheon the Enuma Elish ought to qualify then as mytho-historical, since the story of Marduk's conquest of the dragon goddess Tiamat most certainly relates chronologically ordered, causally connected events uh, in time. He builds the world, the heavens and the earth, out of the carcass of the dragon goddess Tiamat whom he has slain, clearly a chronological event of cause and effect. But that would be absurd to think that the Enuma Elish is therefore some sort of quasi-historical account. But I think it's important to realize that Jakobsen is talking about an ordering in real time, uh, not merely the fictional time of a myth or fable. The second part of the Eridu Genesis is modeled on the Sumerian king list, and Jakobsen credits the inclusion of this section in the, ta uh, in the tale to, and I quote, pure historical interest on the part of the composer, end quote. So it is this interest in genuine chronology that sets the stories apart from pure myth. I quote, this interest in numbers is very curious for it is characteristic of myths and folk tales that they are not concerned with time. No, interest in numbers of years belongs elsewhere to the style of chronicles and historiography. In Mesopotamia we find it first in date lists, lists of reigns, and in the king list later on in the Chronicles. But to find this chronological list form combined, as it is here, with simple mythological narrative is truly unique. The assignment of the tale to a mytho-historical genre is thus further confirmed." End quote. Now, I realize that classifying Genesis 1 to 11 as mytho-history is doubtless disquieting for many evangelical Christians. But evangelical laymen would probably be surprised at how widely accepted Jakobsen's classification of Genesis 1 to 11 as mytho-history is among evangelical Old Testament scholars. The case of Gordon Wenham, who is a highly respected Old Testament commentator, is instructive. Wenham 
is the author of the commentary uh, Genesis 1 to 15 in the Word biblical commentary series. And of Jakobson's classification of Genesis 1 to 11, Wenham, oh, let me put his name on the board for those who are taking notes, um, Gordon Wenham, of Jakobson's classification of Genesis 1 to 11 as mytho-history, Wenham remarks, this is a sensitive analysis of both texts. That is to say, both the Eridu Genesis and the Biblical Genesis. But, and here comes the caveat, but, he says, myth is a loaded term which leads to misunderstanding. That is why, he says, I prefer proto-history. So instead of mytho-history, Genesis 1 to 11 is proto-history. Now, what is that? Well, Wenham says, it is proto in that it describes origins and sets out models of God and his dealings with the human race. It is historical in that it describes past realities and the lessons that should be drawn from them." End quote. Now, this is a distinction without a difference. Uh, Wenham's characterization of proto-history aptly describes mytho-history. Wenham says, and I quote, the genealogical framework of chapter 4 uh, as well as the introductory formula in chapter 2 and verse 4, there he's referring to that formula toledoth in Hebrew. These are the generations of, uh, which then will have a genealogical account. He says the genealogical framework in this introductory formula um, shows that the editor considers his account proto-historical as describing real individuals from the primeval past whose actions are significant for all mankind. The narratives, he says, put profound theological truths in vivid and memorable form in an absorbing yet highly symbolic story." End quote. If we take these stories as straightforward history, Wenham cautions, and I quote, we may be forced to conclude that Genesis is trying to relate history but not succeeding, which would be a rather negative conclusion, end quote. So that's why Wenham prefers proto-history. Well, it's evident, I think, that there is no material difference between proto-history and mytho-history. Wenham simply declines to use the word myth because of the connotations which the word has in popular parlance. Now, by contrast, Bill Arnold is an evangelical Old Testament scholar at Asbury Seminary in Wilmington, Kentucky. And Arnold has more temerity than Wenham. He opines, and I quote, these chapters are no simple history or example of ancient historiography. At most we may say that mythical themes 
have been arranged in a forward-moving linear progression in what may be considered a historicizing literary form, using genealogies especially to make history out of myth." End quote. Not that myth has been lost, rather myth is combined with history. Accordingly, Arnold believes, Jakobsen's nomenclature should be adopted, and I quote, the primeval history, Genesis 1 to 11, addresses the origins of the universe, the creation of humanity, and the first institutions of human civilization. We retain the term history in the title of this first unit of the Bible, the primeval history, because on the one hand, it arranges themes along a time continuum using cause and effect, and generally uses historical narrative as the literary medium for communication. On the other hand, those themes themselves are the same ones explored elsewhere in the ancient Near East in mythological literature. The primeval history narrates those themes in a way that transforms their meaning and import, and for these reasons we may think of these chapters as a unique literary category which some have termed mytho-historical. Now, although Wenham is doubtless correct that the classification of Genesis 1 to 11 as mytho-history is prone to misunderstanding, I do not think that we who are scholars uh, should revert to vague euphemisms like proto-history uh, that tend to conceal rather than to disclose the literary character of Genesis 1 to 11. I think we simply need to be careful to explain our meaning to laymen in the way that I have tried to do uh, in this class over the last several months. Any question or comment then about that classification of the genre of Genesis 1 to 11? Brad. I want to come back to the definition of myth. Uh, should we just not believe Genesis 1 through 15 because it's all made up? No, Brad highlights a good point. Um, myth, we're not using it here in the popular sense, like right. a falsehood. Um, we are using it in the sense in which folklorists use it. Do you remember way back when we started this study, we saw that folklorists distinguish three types of folklore, myth, folk tales, and legends. And the distinguishing qualities of myths as a literary type is that they uh, seek to ground present realities that are determinative for a society or culture in primordial events in the distant past. Um, and so they will treat grand themes like the origin of the world, the origin of humanity, uh, the flood, and so forth. And so that's the sense in which we're using this term, and it's neutral with respect to truth. And, and then we, can, we, can we believe the themes or do we just disbelieve the numbers and ages? Yeah. What part of Genesis okay, 1 through 15 do I question. ignore? 
That's the million-dollar question, Brad, and I will address that next week. Well, you can give me a million dollars if you like my answer. <laughs> okay. Yes, Just Bruce. write a check. That's okay. Uh, well, it seems like the, the effort to synthesize this with other legends of the time is where this idea of trying to... Uh, dehistorizing these these verses comes from but i would submit that if this was true history like genesis 1 through 11 which i would believe then in false renditions of this in the non-believing communities and so forth that you would have people would have develop these other types of stories that have similarities but are exaggerations or uh, or folklore, or what that they would introduce other things into the stories. You have the same thing with the New Testament. You have all kinds of literature that's that wasn't included in the canon. That's very spacious, and some of it's good. And like the uh, uh, the Didache that was, which wasn't <clears throat> included in the in the canon. But then you have things that are very bizarre uh, uh, tales of Jesus. Uh, killing people or as a, in, as a young person or being offended or doing strange yeah. things and all these types, of, there's, there's many different uh, uh, pseudopigrapha out sure. there that are not included in the canon. So I, I don't think you can say, I, I want to categorize the scripture because uh, in a certain way because there's other communities and, and unbelieving communities that have established uh, different ideas and we somehow need to synthesize these. All right. Let me refer back to the lessons that we spent on um, the nature of Genesis 1 to 11, where I pointed out, as I believe appealing to Wenham, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are very, very different from chapter 12 to the end of the book. The first 11 chapters bear close resemblances to the themes and literature of ancient Mesopotamian mythology, whereas from the call of Abraham on, there aren't these sort of uh, resemblances. And so the argument is that when you read Genesis 1 to 11 in its historical context, there are, I think, a couple of earmarks that suggest we're not dealing with just straightforward history here. Uh, one would be the, the common themes that are treated in ancient mythology and in Genesis. The second would be this interest, remember, in etiology. Etiology is the attempt to ground present realities in the primordial past. And at some length, I, I tried to show that that also characterizes Genesis 1 to 11. And so on these grounds, I think that we're on pretty good um, basis in saying that uh, it has the folklorist's uh, interest in myth that would cause one to classify these as myths in the folklorist sense, though the genealogies then definitely show an interest in history as well. Now, when it comes to the Gospels, I think the relevant comparison here, Bruce, is not later apocryphal gospels that 
know the biblical canonical gospels and then try to import Gnostic mythology into them or, or philosophy, it would be whether or not the gospels can be explained on the basis of prior literature, for example, the myths of Greece and Rome, which were contemporaneous with the gospels. And here I am so thankful for the work of New Testament scholars who were able to show that that hypothesis is false. The same sort of hypothesis that does seem to be true of Genesis 1 to 11 was tried in the late 1800s for the Gospels. Uh, and you still find this on the internet, that the accounts of the life of Jesus are predicated upon Greco-Roman or Egyptian mythology and therefore uh, Jesus is a mythological figure or he's influenced by myth. And that has been exploded by 20th century and now 21st century New Testament scholarship, which has established that the supposed parallels between the Gospels and mythology are, first of all, spurious. They're, they're bogus. And then secondly, there's no causal connection between these myths and the Gospels. Rather, uh, scholars like Richard Burridge have changed the course of New Testament scholarship by convincing uh, historical Jesus scholars that the genre of the Gospels is that of ancient biography, like the lives of famous Greeks and Romans by Plutarch. And these ancient biographies definitely have a historical interest. And so we shouldn't think that because um, Genesis 1 to 11 do resemble uh, in their etiology and their grand themes ancient Near Eastern myths, that that's also true of the Gospels, because it's not true. It's false. When you're dealing with the Gospels, you're dealing with a historical genre. Someone else? Um, I'm wondering if you've found in any of the commentaries you've read on the, the subject here, whether there is any... Uh, internal evidence within the rest of scripture that they might have referred to uh, those early chapters of Genesis as this kind of mytho-history? I have focused all of my attention over the last year on these 11 chapters. My next step will begin to, begin to look at what is called uh, intertextual references, and certainly both Jesus and Paul refer to Adam uh, and Eve, uh, and other, there are other New Testament references to Noah and the flood, and so those need to be taken up next, but I, I haven't done that yet. And uh, just a, a tag onto that, <clears throat> is there a, I feel like we're approaching the early chapters of Genesis as if, as if they, you know, we read them as myth, but somehow we have to prove them as history. I wonder if there's a a way of looking at it the other way around where where we're I guess what I'm wondering is would the authors of the Old Testament have just not even thought twice about how they would have uh, represented those early stories in scripture would they were they actually thinking well we're going to do it in this kind of artistic sense of yeah. uh of using the genealogies and these like even numbers and or or are they 
or would they just have thought, well, now, this, this is the way we do these history? These classifications of genre are modern categories, right? These are categories of modern folklore and, and literature and so forth, not categories that the original authors would have been thinking of. So I think there the relevant question is, did they intend for their narratives to be read in a sort of literal way? And I've already argued when we looked at Genesis 1 that I think there are indications in the text itself that they didn't intend it to be read in a kind of literal fashion. Um, and we'll, we'll talk more about that, as I say, next week. Cindy. Well, I just wanted to say you're so brilliant. You answered the question before I asked it. Oh. I, I was going <laughs> to ask reference by Christ of Adam, Eve, Noah, and so forth, and how that might be understood yes. by this approach. And, and you said you were going to look into that further. Yes. So I felt like you answered it, but my other question... Well, I, I didn't answer. I exa- begged you, off you answering begged off, which is, <laughs> I can take that right now. The other is, um, I, I'm assuming, too, that these... What was written in Genesis 1 through 11, prior to it being written, was a compilation of sort of an oral tradition or um, that was compiled in the writing of the scripture. Doubtless. Yeah, and so... It could then be more of at the the way people at that time communicated their understanding or what they feel was revealed to them about their lineage and their origins. Right. And that might affect how our modern day view of that that type of expression seems foreign or in the sense of it not being necessarily a historical um, reflection on everything they knew, but it was their dealings with the subject. Is that sort of correct in the in the? Yes, in the I, I think that's right. We want to try to get inside their... horizon, so to speak, and put ourselves in their footsteps. And that's the danger that we spoke of earlier of of concordism, where you try to read modern science into the narrative and say, aha, this is the Big Bang, uh, and this is the expansion of space. As if they knew that, and they were trying to give us hints, right? What's that? As if they knew that, and were trying to give us hints. Yeah, yeah, right. Or that God God has hidden it in between the lines, um, And we want to try to avoid that sort of hermeneutic by putting ourselves in their shoes and seeing how they would have understood it. Anyone else? George? Uh, Bill, what an example perhaps of what you're talking about, how um, a society grounds itself in um, primordial events. uh, uh, Be maybe here in our society, we value honesty and strength. So we take George Washington, who was ah. a historical character, and then we create what, from everything I've heard, is a myth. He cuts down the cherry tree of his father, and then his father says, did you do this? And he said, I cannot tell a lie. Uh, or there's also a myth that he skipped a silver dollar across the Potomac River to illustrate strength. Uh, are those examples of the kind of thing that you're talking about? Yes, or, or perhaps legends... Um, 
But that is the idea, right? We would try to ground our present beliefs in honesty and uprightness in this event in the past. But I, I think that the only thing there is that it's not really primordial. It's not prehistoric. That's within relatively recent past. And so that might be better described by a folklorist as a legend uh, rather than a myth. Well, let me, did you have a question, Taylor? Uh, yes, I did. Yes. Um, so just a I'm worried for, let's say, um, uh, apologetic reasons of, of using this word, uh, mytho-history. Is it, is it conceivable to view, let's say, things that would be more, I guess, based off of uh, um, naturalism or naturalistic views of, let's say, let's say the genealogies. I noticed that you mentioned um, the justification for it having the uh, name history at the end was the genealogies. Yes. But in between some of the genealogies, there's like certain miracles that may be referenced here and there. Now, scattered. are you talking about the Old Testament? The Old Testament. Okay. Just not, not necessarily Genesis, but the Old Testament as a whole. Is it conceivable that, that these miracles that occur can actually be historically 100% accurate, but the genealogies itself could be mythological. The reason why I ask hmm. is not so much for... Because it seems as though the name mytho only applies to the things that are supernatural, while historical only applies to the natural aspects of it. And so the, Yeah, no, no, like I, I wouldn't want to say that, Taylor. I would say the mytho part applies primarily to the stories, the narratives, and then the genealogies serve to order these historically, and I think show that these are taken as being about real people and real things that happened. Um, though even the genealogies, as we've seen, or as I've argued anyway, can't be pressed for a kind of wooden literalness. Okay, thank you. Well, let me conclude then um, by saying, summing up. In sum, the shared themes and interest in etiology of Genesis 1 to 11 and ancient Near Eastern myths leads us to think of the primeval history as composed of Hebrew monotheistic myths whose primary purpose is to ground realities uh, present to the Pentateuchal author and important for Israelite society in the primordial past. At the same time, the interstitching of the primeval narratives with genealogies terminating in real people evinces a historical interest on the author's part in persons who once lived and wrought. And so it seems to me that the classification of Genesis 1 to 11 as mytho-history is a plausible genre analysis. Now, if Genesis 1 to 11 belongs to the genre of mytho-history, then the question arises, is the primeval history to be understood as literally true? And that's the question that we'll take up next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the stimulus of interacting together on this question. Um, we pray that you would help us now during the coming week to live lives that are pleasing and honoring to you, filled with the spirit and character of Christ, and evincing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
Through Christ our Lord we pray, amen. The copyright for the preceding material is held by Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.